Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith Covenant Church. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And today we are continuing our series that we've been calling Says Who. Now, here's the deal with this series. One of the things that we believe as Christians is that the Bible, both Old and New Testament, are God's word to us. And as such, they are the rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. In other words, the Bible tells us what is true. It tells us what's true about God. It tells us what's true about humanity. It tells us what's true about how we're supposed to relate to each other and to God. And our aim in this series has been to give you principles that are meant to help you read the Bible so that you can interpret it correctly and arrive at the right conclusions about what is true. Now, how many of you guys have taken a multiple choice uh, test? Yeah, some of you are like, ah, don't remind me about those terrible things. When I was in college, I actually loved multiple choice tests, especially the ones where the right answers were super obvious. You know, maybe like this one right here. (laughs) Now, uh, I'm... um, I'm not going to make you answer that. I'm just messing with you a little bit. But the real reason I'm not going to make you answer that is because I know you're all going to say Pastor Laura and I'm going to be a little bit butthurt up here. So you know how it goes. But we've all encountered multiple, (laughs) we've all encountered multiple choice tests where the answers were super obvious. But occasionally you would get an especially evil and misguided teacher who writes your test so that literally every single answer looks like it could be the right answer. And I hated when this happened because you'd look at the test and you'd, you'd read A and you'd read B and you'd read C and you'd read D and you'd say, oh my goodness, they all could be right. My strategy for that was to go eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Catch it. <laughs> Sometimes it worked, but most of the time it didn't. Uh, here's why I bring this up. Because we live in a world where more information than ever about what the Bible says is right at our fingertips. And a lot of that information seems to be extremely well-reasoned, well thought out, so much so that when we are presented with different options about what the Bible actually teaches, it can be like one of those multiple choice tests where all the options seem like they might be the right answer. For example, if I go to Google and I do a web search and I ask, what does God think about same-sex marriage? I might find one article like this one that I found on AmericanProgress.org that says something along the lines of, what we call same-sex marriage is not the same as what the seven passages in the Bible that mention homosexuality talk about. In fact, when we read those passages in context, especially Paul, they tend to be talking about practices such as pederasty, where the issue was not same-sex sexuality, but rather non-consensual power dynamics that allowed young boys to be abused by older men. And when you add to that the fact that Jesus never mentioned homosexuality, we arrive at the conclusion that God does oppose some same-sex practices, but not monogamous, same-sex, lifelong partnerships in marriage. But then I might find a whole different article altogether from maybe a place like DesiringGod.org that basically says, 
when you follow the entire storyline of the Bible, it's clear that God's idea for sexuality is that sex is made to be had between a man and a woman in the bonds of a lifelong monogamous marriage relationship. And while Paul clearly would have been opposed to the unfair power dynamics of pederasty, it was not his primary concern, which is made clear by passages like Romans 1, 26 and 27, that clearly portray any same-sex sexual relationships as not being what God intended for our sexuality. For many of us, we come across two arguments like that, and it can be hard for us to determine whether or not the authors are being faithful to Scripture or if they're just using Scripture to support what they want to be true. And we can often feel ill-equipped to understand which interpretation is correct And why? Add to that the very real pressures that most of us feel from our surrounding culture that asks us to align our Christian beliefs with the world around us. For example, if you run in more liberal circles, you may feel the pressure to make Jesus say what your liberal community thinks he says. And if you run in more conservative circles, you may feel the pressure to make Jesus say what your more conservative community thinks that he should say. My point is this, we can be bombarded by all sorts of different ideas about what the Bible says, and it can be hard to determine what we actually think the Bible says is true and why. Does this resonate with any of you guys? Yeah, some of us. Well, that's why we were really excited about this series, because we want to show you that the Bible does make claims about all sorts of things but it does require some interpretation, which is why we're giving you each week some basic principles to help you read the different genres that we find in the Bible so that you're better able to evaluate what's actually true and what isn't. And our goal is to help us come to conclusions about what is true based on what the Bible is trying to teach us and not what we want the Bible to teach. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at another genre. We're going to look at a genre we call Gospels. We're going to learn some principles for interpreting it correctly, and then we're going to apply those principles to a passage so that you can see how it works. Sound good? Okay. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for a chance to look at your word today. I pray that you help us be open to what your word teaches and not just what we want it to teach Help us gain the skills to be effective and faithful readers of your word. And Lord, when your word comes in contradiction with what we want to be true, we pray that we can be humble enough to accept your wisdom and not force our own wisdom onto yours. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, first question for us today. What is a gospel? Because you can go to the library and you can find a history book and you can go to the library and you can find a poetry book and you can even find in the library collections of historical epistles. But you're probably not going to go to your library and be like, yes, please show me your vast collection of gospels. Because gospels aren't just, it's not really a normal type of genre for us to be exposed to. So what is a gospel? A gospel is a book in the Bible that tells the good news about Jesus, and it does so by recounting facts about Jesus 
recording the teachings of Jesus and bearing witness to the person of Jesus. That's what a gospel is. It's a book of the Bible that tells us about Jesus by recounting the facts, recording the teachings, and bearing witness to the life and person. And the books that we consider to be gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And honestly, for the most part, the gospels are one of the genres in scripture that are pretty straightforward. But like anything else, there are a few principles that we need to help us read it responsibly. So we've got three principles. We're going to hit them as quickly as we can. I'm sorry if they're a little bit dry. There's not a lot of good ways to spice up principles for reading. Uh, But we're going to try our best here. So principle number one, context matters. There are two types of context that help when you read any book of the Bible. The first is the general historical setting. A lot of the stuff that you find to be confusing in the Gospels, it's confusing because there are differences in our historical setting. They just did things differently than we do things. And when we encounter those different historical setting elements, they seem to be strange. And we end up misunderstanding and missing important details. Now, none of us were alive in 8030 that I can tell. Uh, That was quite a long time ago. So we all need to lean into some resources to help us understand the historical setting. I'm going to tell you about some books. If you're interested in these, send me an email and I will send you links to them. But books like Everett Ferguson's Backgrounds of Early Christianity or Craig Keener's um, Biblical Background Commentary, they can be extremely helpful as we learn about that historical setting. But if you're like, I hate reading dry books, a better option for you is to listen to podcasts like The Bible Project or The Knowing Faith Podcast, where they're going to dig deeply into the historical context to help you get a better understanding of what was going on at that part in time. So the first part of context is that historical setting. The second part is remembering that the Gospels were all written to meet a contextual need. This is why if you read the book of Luke and then you go on to read the book of John, you will find that the two are quite a bit different. And that's because each author was writing to a specific audience whose needs shaped the way that particular gospel was written. Now, this can be a little hard to grasp sometimes, so let me give you an example. Uh, If I'm standing in the lobby and I'm talking on my phone and you are discreetly eavesdropping on me and I say into the phone, that's great. Now, remember that Jesus is with you. You can deduce from what I'm saying that I am encouraging someone by reminding them of the enduring presence of Jesus. But because you are only hearing one side of the conversation, you don't know what the situation is that requires that encouragement. And while the encouragement I'm giving is pretty universal, if you were to find out the situation on the other end of the line, that encouragement would become even more meaningful to you. Now, the Gospels are similar. We're reading what's essentially one side of the conversation. And while you can still grasp almost all the things that these Gospels are telling us, if we do a little research and ask, what are the questions or objections or misunderstandings or inherent problems in that community that led to this Gospel being written, 
it helps make the points of that gospel make even more sense. So that's that second part of context. And the easiest way to start to answer um, that question of what's going on in the context is to basically find the answers to these questions. Who wrote the gospel? Who did they write this gospel to? When was it written? And what was the original audience going through when the gospel was written to them? Most commentaries are going to answer those questions in their introductions, um, but instead of buying a $1,500 set of commentaries for your uh, at-home personal study library, a better option is for you to purchase a book known as an Introduction to the New Testament, which will have um, an introduction to every book of the New Testament and will explain authorship, occasion, themes, historical setting. And what you end up doing is you read that chapter on that book of the Bible before you dig into the book of the Bible that you're studying. That'll help answer a lot of these questions for you. And if you want a recommendation on a good one, because there are good ones and there are bad ones, shoot me an email and I'll send you a link to a good one. All right, I know this part was super dry, so I want you to look, and if there's anyone sleeping around you, just give them a wet willy or something. Don't give them a wet willy. Please don't do that. Nope. All right, so what's principle number one? Context matters. Oh, we're not listening today. Principle number one is context matters, and principle number two is bigger is better. Reading bigger chunks of a gospel is almost always better than smaller chunks. Reading smaller chunks is not bad, but you always need to understand what surrounds any passage that you're reading. Because the larger story always informs the smaller parts. Now, I know from the conversation that happened during our like meet and greet time that you all know what a VHS, a VHS tape is. Uh, I had a specific family member growing up who would never rewind the VHS tape. Most annoying thing on the planet. And you would go and you would put a movie into the VCR and all of a sudden it would start in a random location in the movie and you would have no idea what was going on. If you had not seen the movie and it just started in that random place, you're like, what is going on in this film? And we do that same thing all the time with the Gospels. We open up our Bible, we turn to a random story, and we start to read without any concept of what is going on prior to that passage. When you read the bigger chunks, it's going to help make the whole story make more sense. Now there's another reason why bigger chunks are really important. Knowing the bigger story of the Gospels keeps you from hyper-focusing on one teaching which can lead us to draw wrong conclusions about what Jesus teaches. Here's a good example that I run into a lot. If all we focus on are the teachings that Jesus gives about loving and not judging others, we can end up drawing conclusions that Jesus doesn't really care about how we live our lives as long as we're loving the people around us. Now, if I open up my readings to bigger chunks of Scripture— I will see that Jesus does really care about me loving other people, but he also teaches a lot of other constraints and guidelines that I'm supposed to apply to my life as I live. So when I read bigger chunks, it allows me to see the larger scope of what Jesus actually teaches and keeps me from hyper-focusing in on one area. 
So the bigger picture, it creates clarity about main ideas and it keeps us from drawing wrong conclusions. Make sense? Cool. So principle number one was? Oh. Principle number two? Bigger is better. And our third principle today is, and you have to say this one with a good voice, ready the cannon. It's my pirate voice. Yeah. That is a theology meets pirates joke, in case you didn't pick up on that, because we call the, all the books of the Bible, we call them the canon. And you know, pirates are always like, ready the cannons. So, yes. Now, here's the point of readying the canon. As you become more familiar with the rest of Scripture, the Gospels gain a richer, fuller, and deeper meaning. This is true for how the Gospels interact with the Old Testament, but it's also true for how they interact with each other and how they interact for the other books or with the other books in the New Testament. When I read the teachings of Paul and see his theology and practice, it helps me gain clarity about a lot of the things that Jesus teaches and vice versa. So the point here is that when I'm reading the Gospels, if I use the rest of the Bible to help bring clarity to what I'm reading, it can help me understand them more effectively and more faithfully. So principle number one, principle number two, principle number three, I heard some good pirate voices there. Nice job. So those are our three principles that help guide us as we read the Gospels. But before we apply those to a passage, I need to make one really quick point. The danger in doing a series like the one we're doing right now is that by talking about principles for reading the Bible, it is easy to start thinking that there are these tips and tricks that we can use that will magically help us understand what the Bible teaches. And I got to tell you that that is just about as wrong as you could possibly imagine. The only way to really truly start to understand the Bible is to put the work in and read it, to read the scriptures themselves, to read about the scriptures, and to do those things consistently over time. The principles that we are teaching are meant to be guidelines as you read the Bible for yourself. You can't just take these principles, read a passage, and be like, because I know the three principles that James gave us in my sermon, I'm magically going to understand everything about this passage. It's not how this works. We have to apply ourselves over time to reading Scripture if we want to be able to read it faithfully and draw the right conclusions about it. So with that, let us turn to Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, and apply our principles to it. So um, we're going to read this passage in just a second. Uh, but as a side note, if I was at home studying this passage for myself, the first thing I'd probably do would be get out my different translations. I'd bust out my ESV. I'd bust out my NIV. I'd bust out my NLT. And I would probably read this passage in all of those translations because by seeing them together, I'm going to get a much better picture of how to read that faithfully to the original languages. All the translations that, for the most part, that we have in modern English are really good, um, but some of the ancient languages are hard to translate, so choosing multiple translations is going to help you understand the passage uh, and not miss some of the details. So, we're using NIV today. We don't have time to read three translations on a Sunday morning. So here it is, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. 
says Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. So our first task today, we've got to come up with some of the context, because context matters. So if we would look into some of those books that I mentioned earlier, what are some of the things that we're going to learn about Matthew? Well, this gospel, the gospel of Matthew, was almost certainly penned by one of Jesus' disciples named Matthew and was written to a primarily Jewish audience some 30 to 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And by this point in time, the Jews were having to grapple with the fact that this guy, Jesus, had created a lasting and powerful movement within their community. Now, some Jews were vehemently opposed to the Jesus followers. Some Jews were all about Jesus, but a lot of them were kind of unsure of what to think of this movement that claimed that Jesus was God and the Messiah. And so Matthew, he wrote this gospel specifically to give an account of Jesus that answers a lot of the questions that those Jews may have been asking. In short, it was written to show that Jesus was not just the long-awaited Messiah to the Jews, but he was God incarnate who had come to deliver humanity from the problem of sin. So we see that as being kind of the occasion that Matthew writes to, which honestly helps explain why the book of Matthew has literally the most boring introductory chapters of any book that's ever been written in all of history. When you open it up to the first page, it's just a list of names of Jesus's ancestors. Now, if I were a book publisher um, and someone brought me the manuscript and like the first sentence was, this is the genealogy of Jesus, I'd be like, we got to change that. That is boring. But for the Jews... Being able to see right off the bat that Jesus is in the lineage of King David, that's a big deal. Because now he is qualified, based on his ancestors, to potentially fulfill the prophets in regards to who the Messiah, the coming Savior, would be. So, what we're doing right here, by the way, is we're trying to get the bigger is better picture we're starting to look at the whole context of Matthew. So it starts with that genealogy. Then after the genealogy, Matthew talks about uh, Jesus' childhood. And by doing so, he starts to show that Jesus' childhood actually fulfills more prophecy about the coming Messiah. And then after doing that, Matthew writes this sentence. He writes, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, 
proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then for the next five or six chapters in the book of Matthew, he outlines how Jesus did these very things. You get the Sermon on the Mount, which is him talking and teaching about the kingdom of God. And then you get a series of healings, one after the other, that are all showing that Jesus went around healing every disease. And these are the healings, these are really important, that Jesus does. First, he starts by healing a leper. And Jesus, he went to this person who lived on the fringes of society, and he healed him of this affliction, which shows his power over disease, but it also shows Jesus' desire to bring the marginalized into God's kingdom. And then we get the story of the Roman centurion who comes to Jesus because his servant is sick, and Jesus heals this servant from a great distance, showing that he has power to heal even at great distances, but also showing that there's room in the kingdom of God for non-Jews, like this Roman centurion. Then came Peter's mother-in-law. She's laying in a bed. She's dying. Jesus comes and keeps her from death and restores her health, showing that Jesus not only cares about his disciples and their family, but he has power over sickness and death. Then came this really crazy incident when they're on a boat at sea and Jesus is sleeping and a huge storm comes about and his disciples are freaking out and they're like, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus calms the storm and shows his disciples, I have power over nature and you can trust me. And then comes the story of Jesus casting out demons from two men on the road, which show that not only does Jesus have power over nature, but he has power over the forces of the devil. Matthew is painting this picture of Jesus. He's of the right lineage to be the Messiah. His childhood points to him being the Messiah. And then he proved that he has power over unclean diseases, that he can heal those who are a long way off, that he can keep the dying from death. And even the forces of nature and the forces of evil obey him. If all of these things are true, there is only one person Jesus can be. And that brings us right up to our story, which says, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Imagine this situation. You've got these men who have no doubt heard about some of the things that Jesus has done. They've heard about him healing folks, keeping people from dying, maybe even calming a storm. So when this passage says that Jesus saw their faith, it's talking about Jesus seeing that these men believe that Jesus can do something for their friend. So he says to their paralyzed friend, he says, take heart son. Which, I want us to just pause for a second. Think about some of the other things we may have read in the other gospel stories about how this culture treated people with physical ailments. In John chapter 9, we see an example. Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and they come across a blind man, and his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. 
It was commonly thought that people who were blind or disfigured or paralyzed, they were this way because of either their sin or the sin of their parents, which is partly why when you read the Gospels, you frequently come across people who are blind, mute, disfigured, or paralyzed, being forced into an existence where they spend their lives begging on the side of the road. Because the cultural notion was they must have done something to deserve this. And if not them, their parents must have done something where their parents' shame forced this onto them. This was not a world that was friendly to this man on the mat. It would have been full of shame and dirty looks. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, take heart, son. We just need to pause and think about that. There is no physical ailment, no amount of cultural disregard, no amount of shame or disrepute that the world can put on you that invalidates you before God. Your worth is never determined by what you have done, by what you will do, or even by what you are unable to do. Jesus looks at this man cast out and he says, take heart, my son. And at that moment, gives worth to a man who had been treated as worthless. But then he says, your sins are forgiven. If I was writing this story, I would want to see how these men who had brought the paralyzed guy before Jesus responded to this. Because honestly, if I were them, I'd be like, that's great, Jesus, but we kind of brought him to you so you could help him walk. But our story, it doesn't look at their reaction at all. Instead, it shifts things over and focuses in on the response of the religious leaders in the area. So they overhear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, and they respond by saying, at this point, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Now, we've already tried to pull some insight from some of the other books of the Bible, but at this point, we are really going to ready the canon because there are some significant issues here that we need to have a better understanding from the rest of Scripture. And the first is that we need to understand that this was a shocking statement. For Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, was huge because the only person who could forgive sins was God. Sure, the Jews had a sacrificial system that was meant to help atone for sin, but the priests there were only there to communicate the forgiveness that God had offered through the sacrificial system. They weren't actually bestowing forgiveness on anybody. Only God could do that. But here, Jesus, who, by the way, is not an official priest uh, as would have been expected. He was not designated as a priest by the religious authorities. He comes up and he says, your sins are forgiven. One more thing that's really important to take note of. If we look back through the Bible, miracles, like what we've seen so far with Jesus, were usually concentrated in groups that accompanied major workings of God. For example, you get a group of miracles with Moses. Moses has these mighty miracles that were meant not only to help him free the Jews from slavery, but were meant to validate Moses' teachings 
as being from God. The miracles validated the message of the messenger. This goes the same way for like Elijah and Elisha. The miracles that they had were specifically there to validate the message that they had. So the fact that Jesus performed this series of miracles was meant to validate that what he was doing and saying was coming from God. So when he gets up and he says, your sins are forgiven, after having done a series of major miracles, that is very startling to the people who heard it. Because Jesus is basically saying, hey, I'm not just a great teacher validated by these miracles. I am something more. I am claiming to forgive sins, something that only God can do. He's saying, I'm not just a great teacher. I'm not just a messenger from God. I am not just a miracle worker. I'm something more significant. Now, granted, at this point in time, we can't really expect the audience uh, of Jesus to understand that he's God incarnate. But the Pharisees here at least grasp the idea that he's starting to put himself on par with God. And that's what brings this charge of blasphemy. Which, by the way, is not a charge that you would want to have leveled against yourself. It could result in stoning and or death, which stinks. Uh, But that's what they're saying to Jesus. And I love how Jesus responds to this allegation. Verse 4 says, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? This is a super trick question. I mean, think about it. How would you respond? Jesus is like, what's harder to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And you're like, well, on one hand, I guess if you're saying your sins are forgiven, that seems easier to say because there's no way for me to actually validate it. But, you know, only God can forgive sins and telling a paralyzed man to get up and walk. That's really hard. It's a half a dozen here, six there. I don't know, Jesus. So Jesus goes on to say, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Again, we got to ready the canon because this phrase, son of man, it means something special. And an easy way for you to know if you need to research something when reading the Bible is this. If you don't know what it means, look it up. It's really that simple. So, We would look up Son of Man, and we would find that in Daniel, there is a really specific passage that refers to the Son of Man. This is what Daniel says. This is Daniel 7, 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, Jesus, by referring to himself as the Son of Man, is claiming this role as described by Daniel. He's saying, just so you know that I, the Son of Man, have authority to forgive sins, 
I will authenticate this claim in the exact same way that God has always authenticated claims in the history of his people by performing a miracle and healing this man. And he says, get up and walk and check out what happens. It says, verse 7, Then the man got up and went home, and when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Crazy. So what do we do with a story like this? Well, two observations. First, Jesus is not giving us any wiggle room for who we think he is. He heals people. He forgives sins. He knows what the religious leaders were thinking and saying to themselves. And it's hard to see all of these things and not come to the conclusion that Jesus is God incarnate. But then we also need to see this idea. That while Jesus is concerned about our physical reality... I mean, he validates the man on the mat. He heals people. He gives worth to those who have been made to feel worthless. But just as much as that, maybe even more than that, he wants to help us with the greatest plague that humanity has, which is our sin problem. If you're not familiar with this term sin, it's simply this. Sin is the actions, attitudes, and inner realities of our hearts that fracture our relationship with God and with others. It is the thing that screws everything up. The world, our marriages, our friendships, our eternal destinations. In fact, if you read the next story in Matthew, Jesus says these words. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call righteous, but sinners. Jesus doesn't just have the authority to forgive sin. He came to deal with our sin, to call all of us who have in one way or another fractured our relationship with God. Jesus has called us back to God. And if you're here today, and you've never made a choice to accept that offer of forgiveness from Jesus, you can definitely do that by praying to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I know I've broken my relationship with you. I want to accept your offer of forgiveness. I trust in your salvation, and I want to live my life with you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. So we see Jesus is God, and we see Jesus wants to deal with my sin. And we only see these things if we take the time to think about the context, to make sure that we are looking at the bigger picture, and then when we need to, to ready the canon to give depth and meaning to the teachings. You can read the Bible for yourself in a way that helps you understand what's actually true, but you've got to put the work into it, and these types of principles can help you.